Hello and welcome to the NeuroFarm podcast. My name is Colby Burns and I'm joined by Christopher Tony, my co-host. Both of us are doctors of pharmacy. There's over 4 million podcasts in the United States, but we're certainly glad you're choosing to listen to this one. I hope to provide you with some educational and informational content on this evening around the field of alternative mental health therapies and try to provide information for the medical profession and inspire hope for the millions of people who are dealing with mental health crises and looking for alternative therapies and solutions. We are now in September, and it seems that the calendar is turning towards fall, and so is the weather. It's uh, ending here in the Northwest over four months of very dry weather. We've had um, its rain is back. We had two days of rain here, and now there is a whole week to 10 days of rain in the forecast. Uh, What's it like down there in California, Chris? Um, well, it's been very dry, very hot. Uh, usually, it's usually in the triple digits down here. Um, but luckily, we've had uh, a week of you know eighty degree weather, and uh, I've heard there's rain on the way early this coming week as well. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah, it seems rain is hitting the north and west and down to California quite a bit. Um, it's also the rainy season brings pumpkin spice. So do you like pumpkin spice? What's your thoughts on it? It's very polarizing flavor. Yes. I'm, I've had it once officially and it wasn't, um, one of my favorite things to be honest, but you know, I've only tried it once. I'd be willing to try it again. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't been polarized to the pumpkin spice, uh, following, I guess. <laughs> How about you? I'm not a big pumpkin spice fan either. Uh, it just seems to be in everything these days. So there's even a pumpkin spice red vine someone brought into work, and I was thought it was the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. Uh, I, uh. And they said it tasted pretty gross too. Uh, <laughs> but I even <laughs> saw a joke about pumpkin spice Charmin, I guess, to give your bottom the nice smell of cinnamon when you wipe. But I wouldn't wow. be surprised if they had pumpkin spice toilet paper someday with all the ridiculous <laughs> products there are out there with pumpkin spice in them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're going to talk about ayahuasca now. And th- there is no pumpkin spice ayahuasca as far as I know and studied. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, why don't we want to talk about ayahuasca here, Chris? Yeah. So let's start with an introduction uh, to ayahuasca and DMT. Uh, ayahuasca, it's an ancient psychedelic brew made by indigenous peoples in South America. It's prepared from several different types of plants, and the ingredients and brewing process can vary. Um, literal translation of ayahuasca means liliana or vine of the soul. Um, most commonly, it's made from the bark of bent Mysteriopsis capi. Uh, vine and the leaves of Psychotria veritis. I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but uh, they're kind of jumbled words. Um, But other substances can be added um, by a shaman. So ayahuasca ceremonies are traditionally overseen by a shaman and are believed to allow people to connect with a higher power. Uh, The experience involves a purge, which can include vomiting and sometimes diarrhea and usually over 50% of cases. 
Um, after the purge, users gradually move to a different reality with various shifts in their perception. Uh, they may see figures or deities, uh, revisit past memories, and confront their own inner demons and vices through a traditional ceremonial ritual. Um, peak effects of ayahuasca occur in about one hour, um, and the onset is within uh, 15 minutes of consumption. Yeah, I had a question with all the retreats and resorts popping up that offer ayahuasca. There's a lot of um, places people are going. Traditionally, it's been South America, but there's more of these retreats, it seems, opening elsewhere. I know football quarterback Aaron Rodgers is a popular uh, fan of ayahuasca and has gone on some of these retreats himself. But how do you think that we ensure that people are getting real ayahuasca at some of these retreats and not something fake or um, generic substitute? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't think there's any you know, regulatory agencies overseeing uh, those resorts. Um, I'm sure maybe some resorts might offer, you know, lab tested product, but I'm not sure. It seems like the best way uh, to know is if the facility has been open for a while. Um, it, it seems like, you know, people would um, not, you know, keep going to the same facility if um, they didn't have genuine product there. Um, and word of mouth, you know, would probably spread and I would think that, you know, the non-genuine resorts or businesses would uh, sort of, you know, fizzle out or go out of business. So let's talk a little bit about DMT or N-N-dimethyltryptamine. Um, it's a chemical that's found in nature um, in many different plants and animals uh, that can induce intense psychedelic experiences. Um, it induces these intense perceptual, cognitive, and emotional changes when smoked or injected. It is the psychoactive uh, component of ayahuasca. DMT is commonly extracted from plant or animal compounds in nature to produce an orange crystalline structure of pure DMT that can either be smoked through a glass pipe or injected intravenously or intramuscularly or snorted. DMT is an endogenous compound in the human brain uh, which means that it's produced uh, naturally in the human brain. Uh, scientists studying DMT uh, believe that the DMT levels in the brain uh, spike during a near-death experience or event, and also um, DMT is found in higher levels um, in the brain during sleep and dreaming. Uh, DMT is considered by many to be the most powerful hallucinogen known to man, for its ability to produce intense and short-lived rapid alterations in consciousness. Uh, DMT can catapult users into a total, totally different reality, but the effects typically last only a few minutes. DMT has been called the spirit molecule for its ability to induce profound spiritual experiences in those users who use it in a spiritual context. Uh, Dr. Rick Strassman, uh, MD, wrote a book entitled DMT, The Spirit Molecule, a doctor's revolutionary research into the biology of near-death and mystical experiences. The DMT experience itself, by itself is often referred to as 
the businessman's trip uh, for its ability to send the user into another dimension and then back down to a sober state within less than a 10 to 15 minute uh, time span. And that's usually without causing a hangover effect or requiring a nap of the user after the experience. So it's a very clean uh, drug. Essentially, you know, it hits the user very hard and then uh, the brain quickly metabolizes the TMT uh, and the user is back down pretty rapidly uh, from that initial experience. Um, there is someone I'd like to mention, um, Terrence McKenna. He's a well-known American ethnobotanist and mystic of his time, and he's known for advocating the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants and often considered the, the father of DMT. Um, his work quickly you know, spread interest in DMT as he gave talks about DMT at prominent universities as well as publishing a wealth of books uh, such as his book uh, entitled Food of the Gods, The Search for the Original Tree of Knowledge, A Radical History of Plants, Drugs, and Human Evolution. Uh, both ayahuasca and DMT have been the subject of scientific research and anecdotal reports suggesting potential therapeutic benefits. Ayahuasca has been explored as a treatment for addiction, depression, PTSD, OCD, and more. DMT's ability to dissolve the ego has also been studied for its potential therapeutic effects. Uh, Colby, do you want to touch on the pharmacology? Okay, so in the context of ayahuasca, DMT, as mentioned, is responsible for the psychoactive effects, uh, but it is not the only active ingredient in ayahuasca itself. The unique pharmacologic activity of ayahuasca depends on a synergistic interaction between active alkaloids in both of the plants that are primarily used to make the brew. Um, the other primary component of ayahuasca is Harmala alkaloids or beta carboline alkaloids. Um, sometimes, for that's the term literature uses. And ayahuasca harmines come from the Benisteriopsis capi plants, but the harmines are present in other plants as well, such as tobacco leaves, and their name actually derives from the flower Peganum harmala. Some evidence shows that harmines have anti cancer properties and they may have other medicinal benefits as well. But the main role they play in ayahuasca is to prolong the breakdown of TMT to allow more to reach the central nervous system. Um, without harmines present, as Chris mentioned, the half-life of DMT itself is about one hour, uh, but it's prolonged to two to six hours in ayahuasca containing harmine. Harmines do have a lot of drug interactions, however, they inhibit both CYP1A2 enzyme in the body and monoamine oxidase, so they are technically considered MAOIs, uh, if that's a term people are familiar with. But monoamine oxidases, for those who don't know, are responsible for breaking down monoamine neurotransmitters in the body, like norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, and epinephrine, so inhibiting monoamine oxidases increases levels of all those neurotransmitters and has you know various effects in the body which can be detrimental maois used to be commonly prescribed medications 
but they fell out of favor due to their risk of causing things like serotonin syndrome and hypertensive crisis, uh, which is a medical terminology for a dangerous rise in blood pressure that, if not urgently treated, can lead to risk of organ failure and death. Um, the mechanism of action, you know, I just want to take a minute to explain how that occurs with MAOIs. Uh, certain foods like pickled food, citrus, fruits, rich cheeses, and meats, and fermented beverages contain a chemical called tyramine, which is derived from the amino acid tyrosine. Uh, tyramine cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, but it does lead to increased release of neurotransmitters, um, the monoamines or catecholamines, such as norepinephrine, dopamine, epinephrine, which all act to raise blood pressure in the body. So increasing the amount of the neurotransmitters that are released while also blocking breakdown of these transmitters makes more effect of these transmitters on the body and leads to higher blood pressure. So that's why we know that about these agents and they've really fallen out of favor for use uh, in pharmacotherapy. There are different types of MAOIs, however, which complicates a little bit. There's an MAOIA, which is more selective for norepinephrine and epinephrine, and MAOIB, which is more selective for dopamine. There's still a few MAOIB-selective agents that are used in clinical practice. Um, Selegiline and risagiline come to mind. These drugs are used for Parkinson's because they preferentially lead to the increase of dopamine instead of norepinephrine and serotonin. MAOIB is more selective, or sorry, monoamine oxidase B is more selective for um, dopamine itself. But there's almost no uh, MAOIA specific agents or non-selective agents still in the market. The other difference between the monoamine oxidase inhibitors is that some are reversible and some are irreversible. Um, irreversible agents bind more tightly to the monoamine oxidase receptor and remain active for much longer. It's not clear if harmines are reversible or irreversible. Uh, I've read some literature that suggests they are reversible inhibitors of monoamine oxidase A, but until this is definitively proven, I would decide on caution and treat them in the highest risk category for drug interactions and assuming they're irreversible inhibitors. Uh, ben Malcolm and Gillen Thomas, who are two pharmacists writing in the journal Psychopharmacology, also identified ayahuasca as having the highest risk of drug interactions among any psychedelic. And in particular, they found case reports of death when ayahuasca was combined with 5-MeO-DMT, or the toad, which I will talk about in a little bit, um, from serotonin syndrome resulted with this combination, and in some cases was fatal. Uh, we talked about kind of other psychedelics appearing to have a lower risk of serotonin syndrome that maybe the literature kind of overstates how common it is. Um, ayahuasca does appear to have the greatest risk, though, of serotonin syndrome, along with perhaps MDMA, of all the other psychedelics that are available um, because it's an MAOI, the harmine effect. The harmines in ayahuasca, as I mentioned, also inhibit the drug metabolizing enzyme CYP1A2, which causes other drug interactions. So estrogens, amitriptyline, and ropinerol should be avoided with ayahuasca use, uh, as well as caffeine and tobacco, because those are also metabolized by CYP1A2. 
and can be increased when you use ayahuasca uh, to potentially dangerous levels. Alcohol is also recommended to be avoided. That's kind of the standard practice of most psychedelics. Probably not a good idea to mix it with alcohol. Um, too many effects on the body that's playing. With regards to how ayahuasca and DMT work in the body, uh, DMT is primarily a serotonin receptor agonist. Uh, targets the 5-2-HT-2A receptor, much like um, other psychedelics, serotonin-2A receptor. It's the activation of the serotonin-2A receptor by DMT that leads to altered sensory perception and hallucinogens and changes in thought processes. DMT also interacts with sigma-1 receptors and blocks voltage-gated ion, sodium ion channels in both native cardiac myocytes and cells that contain sigma-1 receptors in the body. Um, sigma-1 receptors are intracellular chaperones that play important roles in the transmission of stress from the endoplasmic reticulum of the cell into the nucleus, resulting in the production of anti-stress and antioxidant proteins to help defend the cell. Um, it's unlikely that the action of DMT at sigma-1 receptors is responsible for the hallucinogenic effects, uh, but it means possibility to study. Um, it appears, you know, from where we read that DMT may be the only endogenously produced uh, compound in the body that interacts with sigma-1 receptors, but I think there's a lot we don't know about these sigma-1 receptors yet. Uh, fluvoxamine is a pharmaceutical agent that targets sigma-1 receptors. Um, it's used for OCD and as we say, been studied for COVID. But as far as actual chemicals in the body, uh, DMT is one we know, but we don't know a lot of other agents that target the sigma-1 receptor. Um, sigma-1 structurally is very similar to psilocin. Both are tryptamines or derivatives of serotonin. Uh, psilocin only varies in structure by a single hydroxy group on the phenol ring that is not present on DMT. So they're almost identical structures and look at them side by side and probably explains why they're both very active at the serotonin 2A receptor and they're both considered tryptamines. Other safety concerns with ayahuasca, it causes increases in body temperature with both hot and cold sensations being reported by the user. Elevated heart rate and blood pressure can occur, which occurs with a lot of the other psychedelics we talked about. It's a common side effect. Uh, but this can increase the risk of heart palpitations or AFib. So that is something to be aware of. Not sure if the risk of AFib or palpitations is greater with ayahuasca or TMT and with other psychedelics, but it is a side effect and potential concern with this medication. And then gastric purging. The purge is a very common feature of ayahuasca. 50% uh, or more of users vomit when using it. So that could be concerning for those who have gastric sleep procedures or bariatric surgery in the past or esophageal ulcers. Um, significant amount of vomiting can irritating all those conditions or rupture, you know, the gastric sleeve via the, you know, contracts of the stomach. So it is perhaps a negative side effect and something to think about for people with those conditions. It can also, of course, cause an unsafe drop in blood glucose for patients on insulin, diabetic patients, um, you know, really need to be careful when consuming those substances or anything that can cause you to vomit a lot uh, if your blood sugar drops too low after vomiting. I'm going to move on to talking about 5-MeO-DMT now, or the TOAD. 
So this chemical, you know, is known as the toad because it's famously uh, secreted by the glands of the Colorado River toad, which is also known as the Sonoran Desert toad and goes by the name Encilius alviaris. Uh, used to be known as Bufo alviaris, but now apparently it's Encilius alviaris. It's also found in a variety of plant species and some species of Ammonita mushrooms. Um, it was first isolated in 1936 by the chemists Hoshino and Shimoderia, and then it was synthesized again from a different plant species in the 1950s. Five uh, MEO DMT binds to serotonin 2A and 1A receptors, just like DMT and other psychedelics, but it actually binds with a greater affinity to the receptor than serotonin does itself, which is very interesting. That's actually more active at those receptors than the neurotransmitter that's designed to bind there is. So that does give it the risk of serotonin syndrome, as we talked about earlier. The experience with 5-MeO-DMT lasts between 10 minutes if inhaled or up to two hours if snorted. Onset is extremely rapid. Uh, Michael Pollan described it in his book, How to Change Your Mind, that users experience the effects literally before they exhale. Like on the first inhale, it hits them right away. Um, And that's why this drug is kind of known as the classic businessman's trip. You know, Chris mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, uh, because one could have this trip on your lunch break, I guess, and then go back to work and resume the rest of your day with minimal physical side effects, at least from the experience, mental, you know, emotions and perceptions experience may persist, but physically the drug pretty much is worn off by then. Uh, compared to DMT, 5-MeO-DMT produces more concentrated shifts in perception, while DMT produces more intense visual effects. Uh, like with ayahuasca, there's not a ton of clinical or investigative studies on this drug, but interest is growing as its shorter half-life could make it much easier to administer in clinic. Uh, maybe you don't need someone to come in for you know two to four hour session and be monitored the whole time if this drug could be onset and onset in 20 minutes, so it'd be way more convenient for clinic staff and mental health facilities to give it. Uh, it could also open up the potential to conduct multiple therapy sessions on the same day with multiple sessions, multiple doses of 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, this is already investigated in one clinical trial I'm going to get to in a minute. With regards to intensity of experiences, Administration of vaporized or smoked uh, 5-MeO-DMT has reported to reliably occasion complete mystical experiences in 75% of individuals and a similar intensity to a high-dose psilocybin therapy administered in the laboratory setting. Um, Single-dose 5-MeO-DMT has been shown to ease anxiety, depression, and PTSD in one study uh, in mice as well as inducing neurogenesis. And this really laid the groundwork to study the drug in humans. Um, Currently, there's a phase one study that's enrolling patients to assess the pharmacokinetic safety and tolerability of intramuscularly injected 5-MeO-DMT. But there was also a recently completed uh, combined phase one and two open-label study that was done in the Netherlands and Belgium to test the efficacy of 5-MeO-DMT in patients with treatment-resistant depression. The Phase 1 trial investigated the safety of two individual doses of 5-MeO-DMT, given it either 12 milligrams or 18 milligrams, 
while the phase two trial investigated an individualized dosing regimen with up to three increasing doses, um, six milligram, 12 milligram, or 18 milligram of 5-MeO-DMT within a single day, with a primary endpoint of efficacy as assessed by the Montgomery Asperg Depression Scale, uh, also known as the MATTER scale, with a score on the scale of 10 or less indicating a patient's depression has gone to remission. Uh, and this scale was given at pre-dosing of 5-MeO-DMT and then again at seven days after the dose to see for change, to assess for change in effect. Administration of 5-MeO-DMT in the study was well tolerated. All side effects observed were mild or moderate, and they included headache and dizziness as well as nausea. They all resolved spontaneously without intervention, and no serious adverse events were reported. With regards to efficacy, the single-dose 5-MeO-DMT therapy was effective in achieving remission at seven days in two out of four patients receiving a single 12-milligram dose and was effective in one out of four patients receiving an 18-milligram dose. The dose escalation regimen was effective in seven out of eight patients receiving it, indicating the potential for patients to receive multiple treatments in a single day um, to help maybe get them to remission or improve their depression symptoms sooner. Maybe some additive effects of doing multiple sessions at the escalating dose with a therapist. The main change in the MATTERS rating score from day one to day seven was 65% in the 12 milligram group and 40% in the 18 milligram group and was 76% for the dose titration group. Uh, this trial would obviously need to be replicated in a larger setting and at a larger scale. I mean, it's a very small trial and it was interesting that the effects seen at 12 milligrams seem to be greater than those seen in 18 milligrams. But again, when you only have four patients enrolled, then any one outlier can statistically shift the data. So really need a larger study and a longer follow-up period to see if it's going to be an effective long-term treatment option for patients. But results were promising for a condition that there isn't a lot of options for, for treatment-resistant depression. It's a common condition where uh, oftentimes just kind of go through the list of commonly prescribed pharmacotherapies and just try something and uh, failure rates are really high. So one issue reported with 5-MeO-DMT in forums and literature is a reactivation phenomenon, which is clinically known as hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder, or HPPD. Uh, we talked about this previously with LSD, the acid flashback episode we reference. Um, go back and listen to the hats if you're not sure. But essentially, you can kind of have these flashbacks to experiences by past use of 5-MeO-DMT as well. Uh, that reportedly may occur in up to 70% of people who've tried it, but this is kind of just an estimation. There's not a lot of actual data to show how many people are going to get this uh, HPPD or percepting hallucinogen disorder. Uh, and feelings people experience aren't always negative. Some describe these flashbacks as transient after effects that range from delusions to pleasant bodily sensations and perceptual illusions to some feeling serene, relaxed, and a sense of being one with the world. Um, but more worrying, persistent side effects like anxiety and insomnia have also been reported to occur. So more research really needs to be done on this topic um, so we can have a better understanding of what causes these 
persistent uh, hallucinogenic uh, perceptions and what are some risk factors and how do we mitigate them? Um, 5-MeO-DMT itself can also cause negative effects for some just because of the intensity of response. As we mentioned, it's a very potent agent and set and setting are important like with all the other psychedelics, but since it is so potent, uh, some people could have a negative experience from it. So that's something to be aware of, especially if you've never tried psychedelics before. could be a very intense one to start with. Um, one question we had around 5-MeO-DMT and DMT in general and ayahuasca, is the work of a shaman in preparing ayahuasca considered intellectual property? What is the patent law around it? Any thought on that, Chris? I mean, that's a very good question. I wish, you know, I, I can't really answer that uh, too well because I'm not a patent attorney. But I would think that if a shaman has a unique way of brewing or has his own specific brew, um, that would be his intellectual property that uh, he could be able, he should be able to apply for a patent and should be able to be the sole producer of that specific you know, ritual that he's, that he's creating there. But, um, you know, there's a lot of um, talk about, you know, especially in the psychedelic world, of pharmaceutical companies trying to uh, create different uh, synthesis uh, reactions and being able to... Uh, you know, patent their specific, uh, you know, formula of psilocybin, for example. And um, it seems like they are gaining ground and there are people concerned about it. What do you think, Colby? What's your, what are your thoughts on this idea? I don't know, you know, if the code of ethics for shamans, how that fits in with them or whether I highly doubt there's an issue that they're actually themselves um, thinking about because maybe it's not their mindset in the world. But, you know, one could argue it's an art, a piece of art, this ayahuasca brew or, you know, a recipe is a piece of art, perhaps. And it could be considered intellectual property of their property, how they're preparing it. Uh, you're right, Chris. There's interesting because we're talking about this as all these psychedelics with psilocybin, with the toad, the toad is similar. It's a it's a animal based compound. So, can you really patent something that's coming from an animal itself? Who owns that property? It does pose a question. You know, there's companies and smart people asking these questions, and how do we potentially modify the drug so it'll be easier to patent? Come up with a synthetic derivative, but uh, right. yeah, this is an interesting ethical discussion. I think to have, especially as these drugs become more popular and more people want to make some money off of it. Yeah, and there there is a risk of, you know, over-patenting everything and, and it basically would limit access to these vital alternative medications. And take away money from the, you know, native tribes, potentially, who are the ones who've been using it for centuries and millennia. Right. Yeah. Well, that is all we have today on DMT. Uh, for our next topic, we have an interview with Jeff Stevens scheduled, the CEO of Calm, about their Ammonita Muscaria product, AME1. So stick around and stay tuned for that. We will also try to have an article on Ammonita Muscaria available on the Neural Farm blog. 
Um, for those who aren't familiar with the product, I was not overly familiar with this product until a few months ago. So I would like to know more about Ammonida. I'm learning myself to share with everybody. Uh, we also have a topic potentially in the future talking about mad honey or hallucinogenic honey. This has uh, been the news a lot recently. So um, be tune in for that discussion. As a legal disclaimer, this podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidelines, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances. And as we discussed in the podcast, everything we talked about today, DMT and 5-MeO-DMT is Schedule 1, so it falls in that category of use. Using it are going outside the United States to use it and shamanic ceremonies and retreats. But just make sure to keep it on the down low if you do engage on any of these areas, um, potentially from your employer. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for joining us. Yeah.